So in this passage this morning, we're going to see why Jesus had to go, how we're to join him, and who we're to join and where he goes. So this passage this morning is going to explain the Father's plan. What Jesus is doing here and explaining here in the last moments of his ministry. And beyond that, it's going to address our need for security. Our need for belonging. Because I think it's important for us to understand when we think about redemption, we know the story of Christ come to shed his blood on the cross for the redemption of sins. But redemption is not just limited to our sins. He is redeeming all of creation. He is redeeming all the things that we lost in the fall. And from the very beginning, God gave Adam and Eve a place to belong. He gave them a dwelling, a garden to be in perfect communion with him. And that has been lost through the fall. And each one of us feels that call, that tug of wanting to belong somewhere, wanting to find security and comfort in our surroundings. And we don't have that in this life. The way we want it. Whenever we feel like we get comfortable, there's always something that disrupts our, our comfort. And for most of us, our entire lives are trying to get from one level of comfort to another and trying to get from one difficult season back to comfort. Can you just put my comfort back in order? Can you just put my control back in order? This is my little safe place. But our Lord knows we need that. And he knows that our desire for a, a home Our desire for comfort is a good thing that God put within us. But can only be found in Christ. And through this example this morning as we talk about our home in eternity in Christ, we're going to see how Christ demonstrates his love for the saints. His love for the disciples. And his concern for comforting them. Because in these last hours of his life, He's going to go to the cross within 24 hours. And what is he concerned with? His disciples. He's not worried about himself. The character of our Savior is not one who's self-absorbed. He's about to face the darkest hour known to mankind. And his concern is for his disciples. And he's going to spend these next three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, concerned with comforting them. And this theme of comfort is really going to be brought to a head when he explains the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And so in the midst of comforting his disciples, preparing them for the time that he'll be away, he tells them about the Holy Spirit and where you can find comfort. And so our passage this morning is going to be all centered around verse 6. Many of us know this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This is not only the literary center of our passage. There's 11 verses. This is verse number 6. It's the theological center of our passage. Everything is based on it. It is concentric. We were going to begin and end with belief, and everything is pointing to Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What a testament to our Savior, that everything we need for comfort and security is found in Him. So let's walk through our passage, let's read through our passage, and then we'll walk through it together. 
So we're in John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, in a way that we can never understand, we pray to a God who is one, yet uniquely and distinctly cares for us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, help us to find our comfort in you. Help us to rest in the gospel, which is the foundation of everything. It is the power of salvation to all who believe. It is in you we find our hope. It is in you we find our way. It is in you we find our truth. It is in you we find our life. Let us be people who are so rooted in this that the world cannot shake it, though it may try. Let us find comfort in the words of our Savior. Let us go to his word when the trials of life discourage us. Let us focus on our eternal rest when we can find no rest in this weary, sinful world. Let your Holy Spirit teach and reprove and correct and train us in all godliness according to your word. So the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So he begins with this phrase that we long to hear from our Savior. Imagine coming off the lips of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. And remember, he says them in verse 33 of chapter 13, little children. This is the same sense, little children. And this this sense in the original language is, let not your hearts be troubled anymore. Don't continue to be troubled in your heart. Little children, I speak to you as children. Why is this needed? Now, we can't forget where we, where we came from. We finished chapter 13, and we looked at three very concerning things for the disciples. If your heart's going to be troubled by anything, it's going to be these things. One, Jesus says, I'm going, and you can't follow me. Well, wait a second. 
We just spent every day with you for the last three years and now you're going to go and just leave us and we don't know where you're going and we don't know how to follow you. Yeah, there's going to be some trouble there. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, I mean, this is for better, or for worse. Peter is the, the, the vocal leader of the disciples and he's going to deny you. And the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus told them that all of you are going to fall away. I'm leaving. Peter's going to deny me and you're all going to fall away. But let your hearts not be troubled. It is. I'm just amazed at how Jesus teaches, because in one moment he can tell them you're going to bring shame upon you and everyone by denying me. I'm going to leave you. And I know how much I mean to you. But in the same voice, he's not deterred. He's not shaken. Let not your hearts be troubled. And it is amazing in this moment. Any one of us. It's like, you know, when we go through something difficult, if we have like traffic court the next day or we have like a real uncomfortable meeting with our in-laws or something like that, we're stressing out about it. Up until that time, he's about to go to the cross and he tells them, let your hearts not be troubled. What an amazing picture of our savior that he's so concerned to comfort them in the way that he speaks to them kindly, patiently. And the things he's about to teach them are for their sake, not his has no concern for himself. Let not your hearts be troubled. Notice what he doesn't do here. He doesn't say, I'm going to take all your troubles away. Believe in me and everything's going to go perfect. Anyone who tells you that is a liar. She says, let not your hearts be troubled. I know you're troubled. Things are about to get worse. But what is Jesus' solution for a troubled heart? What is our solution for a troubled heart? Believe in God. Believe also in me. If you're troubled, believe. If you're hurting, believe. If you're discouraged, believe. This, in the Greek, it's, it literally is believe in God and in me believe. God and me are right next to each other. Jesus wants us to understand believe in God and in me believe. When you believe in God, you are believing in me. He's putting himself right next to God. If he is not God, this is blasphemy of the highest order. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this word belief here is the same as faith in the Greek. Believe is the verb. Faith is the noun. Belief is faith in action. When it says believe here, put your faith into action. Continue believing. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is the theme in John. Believe over and over and over again. John has told us, this is my purpose for writing this, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and in him is life everlasting. Believe. Not just wishing on a star, but believe in the glorified Son of Man that we looked at last week. Believe in the one who will die for your sins. Believe in the one who will reconcile you and prepare a place for you. Believe in the one who cares for your soul, your body, and your eternity. Believe, believe, believe. There's no better counsel for the disciples. Because very soon they're going to see their Savior bloody and hanging on a cross. 
They're going to see him put in a grave. They're going to see the rest of the world spit and mock him, spit on him and mock him. He tells them these words, believe in God, believe also in me. And for us, when we are discouraged, when it seems like evil has won, when it seems like God is off of his throne for a moment and none of what's happening makes sense. Believe in God, believe also in me. Meditate on these words of Jesus beginning here. Because for these next three chapters, these next several months, we're going to be talking about comfort. How do we find comfort in the scriptures? How do we find comfort in what Jesus teaches? Begin with this. These are comforting words. Verse two. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And spend some time here. This word house, it's the generic Greek word for house. But a lot of people have a hard time with this. It's like, well, if I go to heaven forever, how can I have a house? Is there like a mansion floating in the clouds or or, or something like that? And um, the church has often been unclear on eschatology. Eschatology, if you don't know what that word means, it means the study of the last things. So we're told that we're going to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. And then, well, what's the point of this house metaphor? Well, certainly heaven is, is, is a part of the end times, but it is not the end of the story. I hate to break it to you. Our home is not in heaven forever with Jesus. Our home is a, is a new heaven and new earth forever with Jesus, with a real home. This is the, the word for house. When we think about this, we almost think of, well, I have to leave everything behind. At my idea of home, my idea of belonging, my idea of, of friends and family. You know, what happens... This is restored in the new heavens and new earth. And I I want you to get this. I want to put this together in Revelation 21, 1 through 3. So turn to the last book in your Bible, second to last chapter. And see how this is brought together here. This is what Jesus is getting at. All of scripture looks forward to this. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what it means that our father has a house and he has rooms for us. This is what it means to have a home. God will dwell with his people in his city forever. This is so much bigger than what typically our American conception of eternity is like. All things restored, everything that was lost in creation, all in its culmination in the new Jerusalem come down from heaven. All because of this hour. All because of the cross. Jesus had to go to the cross because redemption began at the cross. This process of all things being restored, of reconciling all things to himself, began at the cross and will be culminated then. So this house, our eternal resting place, says there are many rooms. We talked about this this morning. and I love how Jay said, I can't believe I get a room. 
You know, anyone ever like had to share a room with with a sibling, and like all you can think about is, I wish his hand went up real quick, <laughs> and I wish I had my own room. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have your own room. This word in the original language means dwelling place, abiding place. It's a place where you will abide. It is a place where God has set aside for you. And many of you are used to the word mansions. There were no mansions in John's day. You had no idea what a mansion was. But there's nothing wrong with thinking that our eternal home with the Lord is going to be extravagant, and we should. We've got to be careful not to impose you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous in, into biblical texts. But it is a dwelling place. And it's interesting because the only other time that this word is used in the, in the New Testament is in the same chapter in verse 23. Look what John or Jesus says in verse 23 using the same exact word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Same word. There are many rooms in my father's house. There are many dwelling places in my father's house. If you keep my commandments, my father and I will make our dwelling place with you. This picture of home is not just a room. It is God dwelling with man. It is the reconciliation of what was lost in the garden, what was lost in the fall. And the beautiful picture of home is where God is. Home is where God and his people are united forever. So where does he go? He goes to his father's house. Why does he go? I go to prepare a place for you. He goes to prepare a place for us. Think about this. Jesus came as a man to live perfectly and die for us. Not just die for our sins, but he must go to prepare a place for us. He didn't stop at the cross. His mediation and high priestly duty and preparation of our eternal rest is why he had to go. All things for us. Many times that escapes us and we don't, we, we don't think about how amazing that is. That I go for you. To prepare a place. He goes before us. Scripture speaks of him as the firstborn of all creation. That in him, he might be preeminent. This is the new Adam. This is the new human race. The new creation. He goes before us and prepares a place for us. And I want to unpack this house imagery a little bit. Uh, So turn to Hebrews chapter 2. In your Bibles to the right. Hebrews chapter 2. Because the writer of Hebrews, if you ever had a question about what is Jesus doing? How is he fulfilling the Old Testament? What, is, what do all these things mean? Go to the book of Hebrews. Beginning in verse 17. And look at everything here that is explained. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, speaking of Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Fully human, had to be, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ, fully man, to become holy priest, high priest, to make propitiation for sin. This is what happens on the cross. This great exchange, the ultimate price, the perfect price being paid for sins. He had to be human to do that. For 
Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How can he comfort us? Because he has been tempted in every way, yet without sin. He had to be fully man and experience everything that the fallen earth could throw at him and not stumble. That's how he can comfort us, because he knows. You think your Savior doesn't understand? He understands. Therefore, holy brothers, speaking to the church, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. This is speaking to Jews who are looking to to Moses as the ultimate steward of God's law and God's people. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is always looking forward. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And if we are his house in, excuse me, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Christ is the one who's perfectly God, perfectly man, the son of the house, the master of the house. The inheritor of all things prepares a place for us, not just to have rooms in the house, but to be the house. We've got to take this a step further. Not only do we have a room in our father's house, but we are the house. Turn two books to your right to First Peter. First Peter expands on this, this concept. Look what he calls the saints. So this is a, a, a real place, this is a real house, but it is also a spiritual dwelling. First Peter chapter 1. Or, excuse me, chapter 2. Starting in verse 4. As, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not only do we get a room, but we get to be the house. We get to be what God is is building. His people, his mansion are the saints, living stones, ministers in his names. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Belief is not just for the gospel of John. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As we're going to get to in the gospel of John or in our passage this morning, belief is what separates the living stones from those who will stumble on the stone. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. You spiritual house are a royal priesthood. You spiritual house are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our heavenly calling is a spiritual one, to be a spiritual house and to proclaim his excellencies. 
This is not one of those rooms where you just camp out in and lock yourself in there for the rest of your life. Because we have this room, we are to proclaim his excellencies. Because our eternal abode is already determined. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the mercy of our God. Not only does he, he doesn't just leave us in our sin. Not only does he redeem us out of it. Not only does he redeem our souls. He redeems our bodies. And he gives us an inheritance. And not just an inheritance, but a room. And not just a room, but a place to dwell with God forever. And not just to dwell, but to proclaim, to be his messengers of this good news that we have received. This is our gospel. This is how much God cares for us. And so this is all grand and this is eternal and transcendent and all that. But let's bring it back home for a moment. God cares for us and provides for us here. The home you have, the roof over your head, the things that God provides, those are good things. We should rejoice in those. But don't be fooled and don't get too comfortable. Don't assume that this is all there is because I don't care how good you think things are now. It is just a glimmer of what life is like in our Father's house. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Look at the promises of Christ here. If I go, I know you're worried and I am going. If I go, I will come again. And if I come again, I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Think about this. How much does our Savior love us? We talked about this in Bible study on Wednesday. That our God is a jealous God. Why is he jealous for us? One of the reasons is because he knows what's best for us. What's best for us is to live in his will. To, to abide with him. Jesus says, I love you so much. I want you to be in the most comfortable place that will ever exist with me. And I will come again for you. It's better that I go. I need to prepare a place and I'm coming back. He's coming again. Amen. Amen. And he will take us to him. Amen? Amen. Because he desires for us to be where he is. Amen. What else do we need to know? We can go home now. That's it. It's not really it in this sermon, but that that's it. I mean, What more comfort do we need? What more assurance do we need than the words of our Savior that he's coming again and he's coming for us and he wants us to be with him? The point is just not going to heaven forever to sit on clouds with harps. It's to be with our Savior because he desired us so much he shed his blood for us. What if the disciples meditate on these words? As Jesus is approaching the cross, what if we meditate on these words? This is why, as believers, we don't fear death. Because our Savior made reservations. If we die before he comes, he's got a place for us. If he comes before we die, he's got a place for us. So what is death? What is pain? What is suffering in the moment? 
this light momentary affliction. It does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. Verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. And you know the way. What a profound and puzzling statement. Because we know that they don't know what Jesus is talking about. We're going to see in just a moment, they're dumbfounded. And you know the way to where I'm going. He's talking about my father's house. He's talking about rooms. He's talking about a place that I can go and I can come back. And you know the way. And you can just anticipate questions coming here. And of course, it is Doubting Thomas. And we are in the South. I'm not from the South, but when you meet Doubting Thomas, it's like, bless his heart. Like, this, this is, you know, this is his response here. Thomas said to them, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? This is a legitimate question. I don't know what you're talking about. Explain this to me. I am simple of heart and I am simple of faith. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? That's the most important question anyone can ask. How can we know the way? What is Jesus' response? I am the way. You don't know the way? I am the way. You know the way because I'm standing in front of you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. Believe, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You want to dwell with me? Believe. You want to dwell in my father's house? Believe. You want to know how to get there? It's through me. This is what it all comes down to. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The early church was so struck by this phrase that they defined themselves as people of the way. When they were persecuted, when, when, when the, the, the Romans would feed them to the lions, they were known as people of the way. They found their comfort in this statement. Let us find our comfort in this statement. I am the way, the way that God came to man. I am the way that men come to God and there is no other. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the word incarnate. I am truth incarnate. Not only am I trustworthy, but I am the authority. I am the truth, and there is no other. I am the life. I will show you in just a few days, I have power over life and death. And I am the light of life to all who believes, and there is life in none other. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to God, the truth of God, and the life from God. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God, and I am the life of God. I am God. Believe in me. This would be the ultimate test. Do the disciples believe? Will they remember these words as he's hanging on the cross for their sin? Will they remember these words after the first night in the grave and the second night in the grave? And all hope is lost by every human estimation. Will they remember these words? I am the truth. I am the way, I am the life. No one. No one. No one can enter my Father's eternal rest. There is no other way to God except through me. If all religions are the same, Jesus is a liar. 
Somebody's lying. And if Jesus is lying, if there's another way to God, then we should just forget everything he says and ignore him. Because if he's a liar, we can't trust him on anything else. But I want to ask a question, do we trust? There's a lot of other religions out there. There's a lot of other ways. I just want to mention one this morning that I see quite often in the church. That every one of us have been guilty of. And I want us to examine ourselves here. Do we really trust that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life? Alright, let me give you an example. Many Christians promote another way. Without even knowing it. Moral improvement. We love to correct the morals of unbelievers. We love to say, do this better. Live like a Christian without having faith in Christ. Anyone ever done that? I know I've been guilty of it. This is like the equivalent of when morticians put makeups on, makeup on, on dead bodies. It's the most ridiculous thing to me. Like, they always look like like something out of a wax museum. Just side note, if I ever, if I die before any of you, do not make me look like something out of a wax museum. Cremate me. But how ridiculous is that? You're putting makeup on a corpse. And so often Christians try to do that. We try to make the world more moral without pointing them to Christ. We try to correct people's behavior without sharing the gospel with them. We try to put makeup on dead people without pointing them to the, to the one who can breathe life into them. How many of us have been guilty of this? And this is such a great temptation. Just try harder. Do better. Change this. Well, if you do this, they're dead. Believe in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Stop trying to convert people through other means. Stop trying to correct people into heaven. You can't do it, and they can't do it. They need to believe in Christ. There is no other way. Moralism is a different religion entirely. No external adjustment can save. It is only Christ that can save. Let's not make our gospel about anything less than that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, if you've been paying attention, I've been with you three years now. If you'd listen, you would understand what I've been telling you. Now I'm telling you plainly. I'm telling you in seven different ways so you get this. From now on, you will know. From now on, you, will, you do know him and have seen him. Here's Jesus' argument here. God is one. They know this. You have seen Emmanuel, God with us. Therefore, you have seen the Father. You see me, you see the Father. You now know him. You need no further proof. Colossians 1.19 tells us, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is standing in front of him in fullness. This should be straightforward. Enter Philip. What I love about the disciples is that they teach us so much about ourselves. Peter is a great teacher. Thomas is a great teacher. Philip is a great teacher. When we looked at him early on in chapter one, we talked about how simple Philip is. 
You know, he just has a simple faith and he asks simple questions. But Jesus says, from now on, you have seen him. I tell you plainly. Look at what he says here. Verse eight. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough. Wow. Essentially, Jesus, you're not enough. You haven't done enough. I know you just told me, but show us more. How often do people do that? Jesus, I hear what you're saying. Everything sounds good, but you haven't shown me enough. You haven't done enough. If you show me one more thing, just one more, then I'll believe. Maybe you're here this morning and this is you. All this stuff sounds good, but you've got to show me more. And you're saying Jesus is not enough. There must be more. But then he's alive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've seen me. Let me give Philip a little slack here. He's not received the Holy Spirit yet. He does not fully understand. But he interrupts this amazing view of what eternity is going to be like. Jesus is saying, let me tell you about my Father's house. Let me tell you about eternity. Let me tell you about what what, what I'm going to do. And Philip does what we all do. Yeah, all that eternal stuff is great, but what about now? Show me something now. Show me something I can have now. Isn't that always the way? Christ speaks of eternal comfort and home in his father's house and him coming back. And Philip responds with, well, what can I cling to now? We have to be aware of that tendency within ourselves. To hear the eternal promises of God and still desire for something right now. Now, certainly there are so many things we can hold on to right now. But our hope is not in what we can see and touch. Hope is not in one more miracle. Everything we have to believe, everything we have or everything we need for security is in Christ. There is no other. And for all of you think that Jesus is, is always straight-laced and very um, soft-spoken. This is full sarcasm right here, and I love it. Basically, where have you been, Philip? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Like, wh- where have you been? <laughs> Let me try to put this in little words for you, little child. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I and the Father are one. Once you've seen me with open eyes, you've seen the Father. This is a spiritual insight you can't unsee. Once you've seen me and know who I am, you know the Father. Are you still blind? How have you missed this? And then what does he go back to? The very next thing, do you not believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Do you not believe? Not, do you not understand? Not, is this too complicated for you? Not, does this make sense? Not, should I give you some another analogy? It always comes back to faith. Do you believe? Do you believe? We know this on paper, that we walk by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. 
But do we believe? When we start to ask questions and we start to doubt, do we believe? And do we believe when we call others to believe in the same thing? Because what we ask people to believe in is difficult to believe. This is not easy. In your flesh and in your fallen condition, this is impossible to believe. We're not called to persuade someone into faith. We're called to do exactly what Jesus did. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Do you believe? This is what our witness is to look like. And too often we make the gospel too technical, too theological, and we psych ourselves out of it. Sometimes we think too much and we take faith completely out of it. We believe by faith. You will not believe unless you believe by faith. So I had some guys over last night and we were talking about this. Essentially, it's, you know, keep it simple, stupid. This is who Christ is. This is what he's done. He is God and he is man. He is the only way to salvation. There is no other rest. There is no other life. There is no other truth. There is no other way but him. Do you believe this? That is evangelism. That is our call. Does not have to be more complicated than that. It certainly gets more complicated than that. And afterward, you, if, if, when someone does believe, then it, we enter into a whole different set of conversations. But the first conversation, that's it. Do you believe or not? Let's take a cue from Jesus here. And then he gets into this clear explanation of his divinity. And he's going to unpack the, the, the Trinity for us in two simple lines. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Look at what he, he explains of our triune God here. So I didn't bring this up yet. But the Father is mentioned 12 times in this passage. 11 verses, 12 times. Every one of them is associated with the Son. So the first thing we see, the unity of essence. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We are one. God is one. Father and Son in one another, inseparable. But yet there's a distinction in person. Because the Son speaks on the authority of the Father. One in essence, distinct in person, but for the purpose of unified, excuse me, unity in purpose. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Father's works are accomplished through the Son. One God, three persons working unified in their distinct persons to accomplish God's will. Simple enough. And if you understand that, you're lying. But we can take heart in that. This is understood by faith. We rest in this. I can know, I I can't wrap my mind around how God is three and one at the same time, how the Father and the Son and the Spirit work. But we can rejoice in it because we know it to be true. And we see it throughout scriptures and we've seen it in our lives. The plan of the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And I'm so excited over the next few weeks to teach on the Holy Spirit. Because either in the church, the Holy Spirit is neglected or abused. And we won't have a biblical understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. But one last thing in this verse, and don't miss this. 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. My words are the Father's works. The very words of Christ are a work of God. How do we know that we can trust the words of Christ? Because they're a work of God. If scripture can't be trusted, then Jesus has failed and God has failed and all is lost. Therefore, we end where we began. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Back to verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. The same formula, yet Jesus now completely unpacks this, this teaching. Believe in the Father, believe also in me. The Father is God. I am God. Believe in God. And what Jesus repeats, we must repeat. Do you believe? Do you believe? Believe. This is a question, but also a command. Believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your old self. Turn in from the gods you have been worshiping. Turn from the gods of your own making and believe in the triune God. Father, Son, Spirit, the only one who can save. Jesus is God. And since Jesus is God, we should hang on every word that he says. Because it is God speaking to us. And his word are the very works of God. He says this last line here, which can be confusing. But it's really simple. Believe me that I am the Father... I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Believe the words, believe the works. It doesn't matter, believe. But in the same sense, if the words of Christ are the work of God, either way you are believing in the words of Christ. You cannot separate the two. And this is the entrance fee to the Father's house. Believe in God. Believe in me. If you believe in Christ, you have entrance into my house. This is our way home. You will have no home in this life. You have no comfort in this life that will ever compare to the home and comfort that Jesus prepares for his beloved. So before we go, let us be emboldened by this passage. and Let us learn from how Jesus teaches us. When he says he is the way and there is no one beside him, believe him. When he says he is the truth and no truth apart from him, believe him. You guys have to fill this in. When he says he's eternal, when there's eternal life in him and no life apart from him, believe him. When he says I lay down my life for you that you might have life, believe him. When he says he is coming back that we may be with him, believe him. And if you believe that, he has prepared a place for you. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing reminder to troubled hearts. There is no one in this room who is not susceptible to a troubled heart. So often we are troubled. by the world around us, by our disappointments, by not being able to see you, how easily we forget, how easily we fall short. Thank you that you know that we are troubled. 
Thank you for faith. Thank you for the work of the Spirit that turns dead things to life. That breathes life into dead bodies. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would continue to remind us and work in us. That you continue to bring the dead to life. You continue to bring the lost home. For those of us who are in you, let us look to you for our comfort and our security. Knowing no matter what happens in this life, our home is secure with you. Because you have promised it. You are coming again for us because you desire for us to be with you. Praise your name for that. You are faithful when we are anything but. You are great when we are anything but. Let us sing. It's the body of Christ. Great is your faithfulness.